to the glory of God and to the praise of Jesus, our King. Amen. Uh, Today, we pick up the trail of our winter sermon series, uh, The Life of King David. Uh, We began this series in 2017, and we've looked at a quarter of David's life each year since then. Uh, In 2017, we looked at the young David from his first introduction through to uh, his times of persecution by King Saul. In 2018, uh, we looked at the conquering of Jerusalem through to uh, his um, uh, adulterous affair with Bathsheba. Then last year, in 2019, the decline and fall of King David. Uh, We watched as things absolutely fell apart for him. Um, The rape of Tamar, the, the death of his son Amnon, and the exile of his other son, Absalom. Uh, We watched the growing conspiracy and then the coup d'etat in which Absalom seized power from his dad and claimed the kingship. We watched as David fled into the wilderness. We watched the bitter and bloody civil war that ensued and that included the death of Absalom, all culminating in David's exquisite grief over the death of his son. And as uh, you may remember, if you were with us, that third period of David's life, it had a special significance. You see, power and glory and honour, it had all gone to David's head. His reign as king had become monstrous in the adulterous affair with Bathsheba, an affair that involved the murder at a distance of Bathsheba's husband Uriah the Hittite. In, in, in all of this glory, he'd become prayerless and selfish, lazy, carnal, even murderous. But the judgment of God came swiftly through the prophet Uh, excuse me, through the prophet Nathan. And so David knew in all that followed, without any doubt, that God was punishing him. But, and it really was miraculous, we also watched, we also saw the old David return as he entered into this time of extreme hardship Once again, he became prayerful and loving, gracious and kind. We saw a David who was once again able to resist the temptation to defend his own cause. A David who was prayerful. A David who was slow to anger and gracious in response to abuse and maltreatment. A David transformed by suffering into someone much more like Jesus. And the beauty of that, the miracle of that, as you may remember from last year, is that David responded to the discipline of God as evidence of God's love for him. That God loved him as a son. That he was keeping the promise that he'd made to him back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Poor behavior would be corrected, but God would never abandon or forsake him. And that's astonishing because actually for most of us, we experience to one degree or another, we experience correction as rejection. 
And occasionally this reaction, experiencing correction as rejection, which is natural to the natural person, occasionally that reaction is so extreme that it destroys relationships. But David didn't react to the correction of God as rejection by God, but rather he trusted God more and more. And it's important that we know and see that as we travel forward now with David. So then, this year, the Lord willing, we'll cover the last quarter of David's life from his return to Jerusalem through to his death uh, in the early chapters of 1 Kings. And so then to today, the return of the king, chapter 19, verses 9 to 40. And what we won't see today is actually David walk back into Jerusalem. That actually happens in the next chapter, verse 3. And it's actually something of a non-event, really, because what we'll see today is the return of the king in terms of everything that has to happen politically for that simple geographical relocation to be possible. But in today's text, we get Act 1, the return of the king, in four scenes. Scene 1, verses 9 to 15. David and the men of Judah. Initial negotiations. The people of Israel, the men of Judah, who had actually sided with Absalom against David, now decide that the only thing, the only thing for it is to ask David to forgive them and to return to them as their king. But they do nothing about it. They dither and argue amongst themselves, recognizing the obvious, but being unable to actually do anything about it. It's David who takes the initiative. He sends them a message. The news, the gossip, has reached his ears. So he takes the initiative and stresses to them their relatedness. Verse 12, you are my relatives, my own flesh and blood. Literally, my bone and my flesh. A Hebrew euphemism meaning one family. My own flesh and blood is the English equivalent. Um, This is, of course, extremely gracious of King David. In actual fact, it's needed. Israel cannot survive without the grace of David because they'd be completely leaderless and the 12 tribes would just splinter and fracture without him. In saying, let's just return to how things were before, David is also saying that there'll be no reprisals, no revenge. David is going to forgive and forget. Given how they rejected him, given their willingness to see him dead, given their willingness to have Absalom his son as king in his stead, this is staggeringly gracious of David. And the hearts of the men of Judah were won over by this graciousness, this keeping no record of wrongs, and they quickly sent reply, return you and all your men. And so the two parties move close to each other. The Judeans to uh, um, uh, uh, Gilgal, uh, near the river, and the king moves down from his battle base at Mahanaim to camp on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. 
all set for that all-important Jordan crossing back into Israelite homeland. And so too, Act 1, Scene 2, David deals with Shimei. Uh, verses 16 to 23. Who is Shimei? Uh, you might be wondering. Well, that's a good question. You see, back when David was fleeing for his life out of Jerusalem, at the very start of this coup d'etat, running for his life before Absalom got into Jerusalem, this guy uh, Shimei, son of, 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 of Gera, of the tribe of Benjamin, this guy who otherwise we don't know him from Adam, but this random guy, Shimei, shows up and starts pelting David and his entourage with stones as they were walking along. And, <clears throat> chapter 16, verse 7, as he cursed, Shimei said, Get out! Get out, you murderer! You scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Well, it's, it's an unhinged, irrational rant that is actually utterly inaccurate as an analysis of, his, of history or of God's motives. David did not murder anyone in Saul's household. Indeed, David was absolutely loyal to Saul, even refusing to harm Saul when Saul was trying to kill him. And uh, back on that day, one of David's two key military generals, Abishai, asked David at the time, why are you putting up with this? Just say the word, I'll chop off his head. And in response, David said, Abishai, this is from God. I deserve this, although not for the crimes he thinks he knows about. So don't stop it. Abishai, I trust God. I trust him to turn this curse into a blessing for me. I exercise, I, sorry, I trust God in the exercise of justice. And what David recognized was the justice of God in unjust suffering. But later, with Absalom dead and the civil war now over, Shimei comes back, now, now rational, contrite and self-controlled. Um, by the way, irrational mood swings um, with seemingly hyper-reactivity. This basically is a characteristic of the tribe of Benjamin. It seems to be how they all react. Um, but now um, Shimei comes calm and sane and pleads for forgiveness, acknowledging that what he did was sin, that it was evil, and asking indeed that David please might both forgive and forget. Uh, again, once again, Abishai, a son of Zeruai, um, um, the military general is advocating for the death penalty. In fact, he's demanding it. Verse 21, shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. And David responds to that with strong words. And the interplay between these two men, Abishai and David, it contains strong resonances of many other similar encounters. 
Abishai wants Shimei dead. And he uses God's personal name, Yahweh, represented in our Bible as the word Lord, all in capitals. He uses the name of the Lord and he quotes the Bible. Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight: do not curse the ruler of your people. But his demand to David is that David conforms himself to the ancient Middle Eastern ideal of kingship. And that ideal being one that arguably is still in place in the Middle East. Uh, that ideal is that the ruler demonstrates his authority in aggressive displays of power and strength. In particular, in the execution of all who oppose him. Abishai and his brother Joab, along with him, they are religious men who constantly have the name of the Lord upon their lips, but whose ideas and values are utterly worldly. Abishai and Joab are the worst kind of enemy. They are religious men. David's response to this is, in essence, Get behind me, Satan! For you do not have in mind the things of God, but rather you have in mind the things of man. That's David's response in essence. What he literally said was this. What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zeruiah? Uh, for you are to me today as accuser. Should a man die in Israel today? Do you think that I do not know that I myself am king of Israel? There's a phrase in the middle of David's answer that is rendered in our NIV translations as, what right do you have to interfere? But in Hebrew, it's literally something like, you are to me today as accuser. And the Hebrew word for accuser is Satan, Satan. David's point is this, the ministry of accusation is satanic. That's a play on words, given that the name Satan means accuser. Abishai is tempting David to do the wrong thing, and David is feeling that temptation sorely. He's struggling with that temptation, that's why the words are so strong. That the Abishai is using the name of the Lord and the Bible to tempt him is something that we should see. Abishai's words are, in effect, if you are the son of God, do something decisive and mighty right now that we all might see it and fear. But David says, I know who I am. David knows that he is a recipient of God's grace, that God, with respect to him, has both forgiven and forgotten. And so he extends the same grace to Shimei. Anything else would be gross hypocrisy. Before we leave this scene, scene two, uh, there is a blessing here that we ought also to notice Shimei, as an expression of his repentance, has brought with him a massive welcome home party for David. A thousand Benjamites, along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, 
and his 15 sons and 20 servants. Now, for, for, for a decade, David has had to live with the slight taint of inauthenticity. There has always been someone or another saying, well, actually, the traditional, authentic royal line is the line of Saul, tribe of Benjamin, first king of Israel. Not the line of David, not the tribe of Judah. David's just some Johnny-come-lately. David is an innovator, an opportunist. He's new money. He started out as just a shepherd, you know. But from today, David will never have to put up with such whispers again. The tribe of Benjamin, led by Shimei, shows up in force to support the Davidican kingship, and there'll never again be any hint or suggestion that the line of Saul has any claim or warrant to kingship. Instead, actually, there'll be from this point on hereafter an actually really strong relationship of kinship between the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. David's kingship is going to be stronger than ever. God does indeed turn curses into blessings. David counted on it and he was right to do so. Uh, enter stage right, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul. Act 1, scene 3. David deals with Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson. And again, we need to know the backstory. Uh, Mephibosheth is the only surviving son of Jonathan, who was David's closest friend and ally. The closest friend David ever knew. Even though Jonathan was Saul's eldest son, and therein uh, he, had, uh, he was the heir to the throne, David and Jonathan had sworn a covenant of faithfulness to each other because Jonathan knew that David was God's chosen and anointed king, that is to say, Messiah. On the day that Jonathan and Saul both died in battle, fighting the neighbouring Philistines, Mephibosheth was only a five-year-old boy, a child, uh, fleeing for safety. His nursemaid picked him up and ran, but she tripped. And in the accident, in the fall, both of his ankles were broken, crippling him for life. And from that day on, Mephibosheth actually grew up in hiding. As Israel descended into civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and thereafter, as the house of David came to power, he was in hiding. But not long after David was crowned king over all Israel, David sought out Mephibosheth in order to be faithful to his promise of covenant faithfulness to Jonathan. And we looked at the Bible's account of that, First, first Samuel chapter 9, we, we looked at that because it was in many ways the high watermark of David's reign. An act of astonishing, proactive kindness and faithfulness to someone who ordinarily would have expected to have been despised and shamed by King David. What David did back then was restore to Mephibosheth his inheritance, Saul's estate, and he made him a member of his inner court each night dining 
at the king's table. And that was a most astonishing act of chesed, a Hebrew word that is usually translated as love, but it means kind of um, more than that. It, it, it means faithful, promise-keeping, loving kindness. As God had been chesed to David, so David was chesed to his subjects, even the crippled grandson of the man who had persecuted him and tried to kill him. But uh, coming forward to yet another chapter in the Mephibosheth story and moving again many years forward, on the day that David had had to flee, uh, um, in, uh, flee from Absalom, flee from Jerusalem, on that day of the coup d'etat, on that day, Ziba, uh, Mephibosheth's chief steward, met David with, donkel, with, with donkeys loaded with many provisions. And quoting from chapter 16, the king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and fruit are for the men to eat. And the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. The king then asked, where is your master's grandson? Ziba said to him, he is staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. Then the king said to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said, may I find favour in your eyes, my lord the king. But here today, in our text today, as David re returns, Mephibosheth turns up. He's there to say, it's not true. Ziba tricked me and he duped you. I wanted to come, but Ziba, my servant, double-crossed me. David's reaction, I can't hear any more of this. You and Ziba take half, 50-50. Um, David's decision, extraordinarily, is to decide not to decide. Really, only one of these men can be telling the truth. And they're both there. Ziba, we remember, arrived with Shammai back in verse 17. David could have set up court, called witnesses, found out who was telling the truth and who wasn't, executed the traitor. But David's wisdom as king, though, perhaps is to decide it's better not to know it will eventually fall down to basically being one man's word against another. The decision to split the land down the middle and give each man half, it actually may remind us of another decision. It may remind us of Solomon's decision to split a baby down the middle and give half to each of the two women claiming to be the child's mother. Although, in fact, that event hasn't happened yet. Solomon... He, he's still a kid at this point. His reign is not for many years to come. But maybe on that day, as a kid, he was watching his dad. And that's what gave him the idea. And the reaction of Mephibosheth, he can have it all. I'm happy just to have you back and to escape this with my life. It, it does kind of prefigure the reaction of that mother. No, 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 let her have him. Just don't cut the baby in two. 
David's decision allows both men to be telling the truth, even though both stories can't be entirely true. But there is strong evidence on both sides, something that is indisputably in Mephibosheth's favour, uh, though, is his appearance. Um, from the day of David's departure, uh, probably some weeks or months uh, beforehand, Mephibosheth has been careful not to wash his clothes, in other words, not to change his clothes, um, nor to wash his feet, nor to trim his beard. And this total abandonment of personal hygiene wasn't intended to aid social distancing. No, it was intended to signal powerfully and publicly his grief and distress at David's departure, his refusal to celebrate the new rule, and to demonstrate publicly his support for David, not Absalom. And Mephibosheth took his life in his hands when he did that. He was betting his life on the return of the king. Act 1, scene 4, David and Basili, verses 31 to 38. This time the narrator does give us the backstory. Basili, a wealthy man, had been one of a group of men who, at Mahanaim, had provided very generously for David and his soldiers. The reference is chapter 17, verses 27 to 29. David's desire now is to return the favour and to honour him. But but Barzillai declines on the basis that, being 80 years of age, he's too old to enjoy or participate in the pleasures and amusements of court life. Declining such an honour would usually be unthinkable, so his speech is lengthy. Instead, he asks that the reward goes to Kimham. We are left guessing as to who this man is. Is it his son? Is it a favoured and faithful servant, well, we don't know, but I think it's probably a grandson. Nevertheless, in uh, the book of Jeremiah, we'll discover that there's, later on, there's a place just outside of Jerusalem named Gareth Kimham, Kimham's hospitality, or Kimham's estate. And so we know that David was true to his word. Well, Act 1 ends with the king finally crossing over the Jordan. That all-important transition back into homelands, accompanied by Kimham, all of David's soldiers, and half of the soldiers of Israel. And they move to Gagal, a a journey of about six kilometres. In making some conclusions, then, what can we learn from this passage today? Well, without question, David's political decisions are held up for our examination because we are to see how incredibly gracious he is being. Scenes 1, 2 and 3 are all about people who expected to die not dying. In scene 1 and 2, we see the traitors in Jerusalem and Shimei, the man who cursed the Lord's anointed, all get off scot-free. They're they're as guilty as hell, and they're without excuse. But David forgave them. David's departure from standard operating procedure for Middle Eastern kings is astonishing and radical. But the reason for it is simple. 
David knows that he himself has been forgiven. That he himself is as guilty as hell, and that by rights he ought not even to be alive, let alone king. But he is. David knows that as a recipient of grace, it would have been provoking to God, wrath-inducingly hypocritical of him not to extend grace to others. David understands, therefore, that forgiveness is necessary. Jesus teaches us the same thing precisely in many places in the Gospels. In the Sermon on the Mount, which we've just finished looking at, Jesus says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And I've spoken so regularly on the spiritual necessity of forgiving everything immediately and always that I won't repeat myself here. But we can uh, take from the life of David, from this passage, the illustration we need to see this principle in operation. Forgiveness is necessary. As uh, Christians, we often make the tragic mistake of thinking that forgiveness is nice. Well, forgiveness may or may not be nice, but it is necessary. Another tragic mistake that people can make with respect to forgiveness is thinking that forgiveness is weakness. It isn't weakness. It's wisdom. Forgiveness is wise. When David's graciousness is on display, so is his wisdom on display. Forgiveness solves problems that otherwise wouldn't and couldn't go away. Forgiveness makes reconciliation possible. David's decision to be gracious created safety and stability in an awfully unstable and precarious situation. He acted wisely because forgiveness is wisdom. And our text today must also prompt us as to whether we are ready for the return of the king. The text models for us the chesed of God in that we are as guilty as hell and without excuse in so far as we have sinned and rebelled against the rule of God. Whatever that rebellion may have actually looked like in each of us. But in Jesus, we can know that we are forgiven. By his blood, by his sacrifice on our behalf on the cross. And we can know that God has both forgiven and forgotten when we plead his grace. Now, all of us, like the men of Judah and Shimei, son of Jerah, bet the wrong way at some point in however we rejected the rule of, of Jesus in our lives, we bet the wrong way, previous to our coming to faith in him. But as repentant people, Mephibosheth and Bar-Zillai prompt me to think, have I conspicuously, publicly and generously bet my life on the return of the king? The text and the spirit lead me 
in making sure that I do. And the Lord be with you. Amen.